0: This is the Bible Book Club, and we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome to the club.
1: In episode one, we did just a general overview of the book of Joshua. It is the first of the history books. And my personal Bible bender from last episode was the little review that you did, Susan, because... It reminded me that Joshua, we've met him several times throughout the whole time that Moses was leading, but he was really a secondary character. And it was probably something, or not probably, I definitely missed it or didn't notice it as much when we were reading because it's such a focus on Moses during Mm -hmm. the whole Torah. And so Joshua has been being schooled and has learned from the best of the best. And he is now ready. He's ready to take on this next challenge as he moves into the promised land and leads these people. Then we also read the first part of chapter one where God prepared Joshua now to take that leadership over Israel. God's message is clear and it echoes what Moses had already told Joshua right before he died. Be strong and courageous as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. One of the greatest and pro- possibly one of the most quoted <laughs> yes. Yes. in the Bible. Yes, it's a good one. Well,
0: the book of Joshua is the story of how Joshua led the Israelites to conquer the the evil Canaanites and settle in the land God promised to Abraham. And that is where we begin today. In scene one of this episode, Joshua has just left the presence of the Lord, where he was told that it is time to take possession of the land. And he was commanded to be strong and courageous, like Heather said, because the Lord promised to be with him wherever he goes. And Joshua does not waste a minute. He rallies the troops
1: to Prepare for battle. This is chapter one continued. Joshua 1, verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you. You rest by giving you this land, your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting man "'Ready for battle, must cross over "'ahead of your fellow Israelites. "'You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest "'as He has done for you, "'and until they too have taken possession "'of the land the Lord your God is giving them. "'After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, "'which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you "'east of the Jordan toward the sunrise.'" Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So I know in the last episode, we did talk
0: a lot about this man, Joshua, but from what we're reading, here are a few more things you can um, learn from this man. Joshua is a man of action. You almost sense from his reaction to God's words that Joshua has been waiting for this day with tightly coiled anticipation because he springs into action. He knows exactly what to do, and he immediately starts down his list. Spread the news. You have three days. Oh, and you trans-Jordan tribes? Don't you even think about getting out of your commitment? Now, if you're new to Bible Book Club, know that in the book of Numbers, Moses allowed the Gadites, Reubenites, and half-tribe of Manasseh to claim land on the east side of the Jordan. At their request, with the stipulation that they would fight with the other tribes to claim the promised land on the west side of the Jordan. So they're often called the Transjordan tribes because they lived on the wrong side of the river. Now, another thing about Joshua, he is a man of authority the people respond to him with respect, insisting that they will obey him just as they obeyed Moses. And remember, it's only 30 days after Moses died. So you can you can tell like what Heather went over in the recap from last episode, Joshua has been building credibility and respect for years. This wasn't just a switch that went on. It was something that was an investment in he, that both he and Moses made. Now, this was no small ask. Joshua said that the transgender. Jordan tribes must cross over the river ahead of their fellow Israelites. These tribes were impressive soldiers. And would lead the way, putting their lives on the front line for land that would not even be theirs. Their response that they will do whatever Joshua commands and go wherever Joshua sends them speaks of the great respect that they have for Joshua and the successful transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. They are so all in that they themselves recommend death for any man who dissipates from their tribe. And lastly, as if in a Cry response to their new leader, Joshua, they affirm their allegiance to him and the cause by reiterating God's words for him to be strong and courageous. So they're echoing it back to Joshua, just be strong and courageous. Here's another interesting thing about this: God's command to the Israelites to go and cross the river and conquer
1: can be compared to God's command to us in Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So just as
0: in the Old Testament, so in the New. God commanded the Israelites to go take the land and become the nation that he had promised. God commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. And just as God promised to be with Joshua, so Jesus promises to be with us as a part of the Great Commission. Okay, now for a little change of scene. Next, we have a very interesting story. This is the story of reconnaissance, Rahab, rescue, and romance also sometimes called the spy who loved me yes there is romance in the bible not a lot i admit but this is one story that has movie potential we just need a strong supporting actor for this next scene um because you know i already picked henry cavill for joshua but joshua's not in this next scene um this romance is not about him What about a different spy? So who are the main characters in this next story? Well, Rahab is the star, and I'll cover her in a minute, because she's fascinating. But there are also two spies that are featured one of whom might be the spy that loved Rahab. Unfortunately, Joshua does not give us the names of these two spies. So there is no way this side of heaven to know for sure who these spies were. However, there are assumptions and one strong clue in the New Testament. Now, here are the two common theories about who the spies might be. The Jewish rabbis believe that the spies were Phineas and Caleb. Now, Phineas was the grandson of Aaron, and he became the third high priest when his father Eleazar dies in Joshua chapter 24 ahead of us. Caleb had been with Joshua in the first spy expedition over 40 years ago, when Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe to scope out the land. Now, Phineas is from the tribe of Levi and Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. So it makes sense that the two most important tribes are represented in these two men. However, it is not probable that, that Joshua would send a priest of Phineas's rank on such a dangerous expedition because he was the heir to the high priesthood, which is the highest priesthood of all, and was highly trained to take over when his father dies. So, why would Joshua send him on this risky journey? Additionally, neither of them, Caleb or Phineas, were young men at this time. And in Joshua 6, 23, we're going to read
1: in a few episodes, it clearly says that, So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab. So we know they were young.
0: And that's the only descriptive word we kind of get about them at this point. But it rules out Caleb and Phineas. But if not them, then who? We can only guess. But remember, way back in Numbers 13, Episode 7 of Season 2, Bible Book Club, when Moses sent 12 spies to explore the land of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies of the 12 Still alive today because they were faithful and did not rebel at the time. Now, Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, but Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. So it does make sense that Joshua would choose someone to replace the faithful Caleb, who's now older, from the tribe of Judah. They are the it tribe, the one from whom the Messiah will come. Possibly the other spy Joshua chose was someone he knew from his own tribe to replace himself on this spy trip. So it makes sense that one of the spies was from the tribe of Judah. Remember that because I'm going to get to it. And then possibly the other spy could have been someone Joshua chose from his own tribe that he knew well, the tribe of Ephraim, to replace he and Caleb from the original group. Now, no spy names are ever given in the Old Testament. However, in the New Testament... Matthew tells us that our girl Rahab, the rescuer of the spies, married Salmon, a prince or leader from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, it makes sense that maybe he was from the tribe of Judah because Caleb had been from the tribe of Judah. Now, Ellicott's commentary states this, records are silent as to the marriage of Salmon with the harlot of Jericho. When they were compiled by the Jews, it was probably thought of as a plot Rather than a glory because she was a harlot. But the fact may have been preserved in the traditions of the house of David. It has been conjectured that Salman may have been the one of the two unnamed spies whose lives were saved by Rahab. So the theory is that Salman is the spy who loved her. We will discuss more about it, though, so hold on to that thought. All right, enough about the two spies. Let's discuss the main character and heroine of this story, Rahab. First, Rahab was a prostitute. The Hebrew word zana. is is translated as harlot. And zana is used five different times to describe Rahab. Now, being a prostitute is not a position of honor in any society. And so many commentators and Jewish historians have tried to reinterpret the Hebrew word describing Rahab as a prostitute to make her situation sound better than it was. You can't do it. They argue that Rahab was probably just a businesswoman who ran a tavern in the wall of Jericho. This is not true. God made it very, clear that he wanted to use a prostitute in this story. Why? Because Rahab is special despite her past, and so are we. God wants us to know that our place in society and our sin in the past does not prevent us from being used by God. Rahab is that example for us of how God can use us when we step out in faith, no
1: matter what our background. And that is a great example of how reading the Bible, even though it seems like something from so long ago, can apply to your life today. Yeah, because you're not going
0: to believe how far this girl goes. And we're going to get into it, not in this episode, in two episodes, what she becomes in history. I mean, she is held up by... The greats as great. So she was also an innkeeper. So although many people try to reduce her to just an innkeeper, she was an innkeeper. In the days of Jericho, traveling merchants went to and fro through the city gates. Therefore, the inns were often in the wall of the city, conveniently located for the arrival or departure of the merchants. And conveniently located for her brothel business. Exactly. Additionally... We know from receipts of inns during this period, they've actually found, like, especially Roman receipts, that renting a bed at an inn. Often included the rental of a woman to go with the bed. Oh my. Think of it as an add on like groom service. (laughs) Rahab owned the inn and provided the required services. Now, we love Rahab because of who she was, what she did, and who she became. And we're going to cover all of that. She was a woman who defied the odds. Rahab is an inspiring example that faith overcomes faults. She was a Canaanite. They worshipped evil things. She was a prostitute. It was not a sought-after job. She was a wily woman, liar, negotiator, and a survivor. But Rahab became also a believer, and that changed everything. This is the story of
1: Rahab and the Rescue. Chapter 2 Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent out two spies from Shittim— go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had Come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may be able to catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Okay, the first
0: thing we noticed about Rahab is that she was bold. And her Amorite name meant just that. Bold, fierce, or insolent. She owned her own inn, despite the fact that she had to sell herself to do it. That's pretty bold. She was courageous to risk it all, her inn, her job, her life, to rescue these spies. The other thing we should notice about Rahab is that she was industrious and clever. Because she has flax that she uses to hide the spies and later uses a red cord, it is believed that Rahab may also have had another source of income as a linen
1: manufacturer. If she that did, was the legitimate business, and then she had yeah, the exactly. illegit- legitimate business. No, she was behind. working
0: day and night. That girl, yeah, <laughs> you know, she was making flax by day, and you know what else she was doing at night. But she was a busy girl and very resourceful. She kind of reminds you of a Proverbs thirty-one woman, but without the noble character. I almost, yet <laughs> I was going to say that same yet. thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except she's a liar. <laughs> yet she's going to get there. She's definitely going to become a Proverbs thirty-one woman. There's hope for all of us. Now I wish you could see this kind of drawing I found online. Of Jericho. But if you've been over, you know, anywhere in Europe in those old days, they usually built the villages up on hills and they often, the hills got bigger because if they had a fire or anything, they just built on top of what was destroyed. But Jericho had two walls it had an outer wall lower down the slopes. And people lived in between that wall. And then it had an inner wall. And that's why it was so hard to conquer because there were actually two walls. And then you had the city up at the top. So the roof, her roof, she must have been in the outer wall because remember, they could see in her window the the cord. We're going to get to that part, but just no spoiler alert there. The the roof that she was on would probably have been very visible to those kind of up higher in the city. Um, Because that city was built on a hill, remember, and her house was most likely um, on that outer wall. The houses higher up could have looked down and seen the flax. Most likely, drying flax was a common practice for Rahab because nobody made anything about it. And that's why it was kind of smart of her to hide them under the flax because no one probably thought it was unusual that she had it on her roof and if the spies searched her house they may not have really they may have gone on the roof and just saw all that stuff laying out and ignored it so she actually kind of cleverly hid the spies in plain sight of others without arousing suspicion because the homes wouldn't have been they would have been kind of sparse it's not like they had big closets and stuff like that back then um, Rahab was also very believable It is rather strange that the soldiers so quickly believed Rahab's story and never bothered to even search her house. Was that God's protection? Or, as a prostitute, was she just skilled at using her persuasive powers with men? Whatever the case, she outright lied to protect the spies. Now, many writers have a problem with this because it is wrong to lie. But this is not our first biblical encounter with the lying conundrum. In Exodus 1.17, the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, lie to Pharaoh. They had been told by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew boys as they were being born which, of course, they did not do because they feared God more than Pharaoh. When Pharaoh questioned them, they lied. They said that the Hebrew women were so vigorous that they gave birth before the midwives even arrived. The Gospel Coalition justified... These two examples of lying this way. And I like it because in both of these examples, God used these women. So clearly he was okay with them lying. They said this, It appears, as in the case of the midwives and Rahab, that there are occasions when deception is permissible. A lie is an intentional falsehood that violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are cases in which people forfeit their right to know the truth, such as in times of war, when someone has criminal intentions or if a person's life is at risk. In these cases, a person is not under obligation to tell someone the truth. And this very much reminded me of Anne Frank and the people who lied to hide her, and of Corey Ten Boom, whose family lied to hide Jews like Anne Frank. So I love that they
1: explain this because, yes, in this case, God was obviously okay with Rahab lying. Okay, keep going. Verse 8 Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab was wise, she
0: was not just smart. She had wisdom, and to me, wisdom is, is intelligence plus spiritual intuition. She had her pulse on the world outside, not just her small little town inside the walls. And the location of her house is kind of symbolic of this. She lived in the wall of the city, but her window looked out on the world. Now, she had heard the tale of the Red Sea enough to believe in it. In fact, the story... Of the Red Sea may have been sung many times in her tavern, for she quotes a line from the victory song of Miriam and Moses in Exodus 15. She said to the spies, All who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now, remember songs were created after victories to help generations remember them in the future. So they would sing them and sing them. And then the children would learn about the great victory that they had in the past. Now, in the Song of Victory after Egypt's
1: defeat, there is a line that says this. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away Terror and dread will fall on them. So, that melt away word is the exact
0: same word she used. And I can just see Rahab serving drunk, rowdy men the IPA of the day as they bodily sing the song and pausing in the middle of her serving when she hears them sing the word Canaan and thinking, wait, what? What will happen to Canaan? Sing it again, I want to know more. Because she is in Canaan, and they're singing about what will happen to Canaan. And she heard more about Israel from men as they traveled through. She began to believe with every little bit of information she got. And as her conviction grew that what she believed was was true, despite what the people in Canaan may say, so did her courage grow. Rahab was discerning and open to learning more. She didn't just stick to what she had grown up with. The Canaanites were polytheists, worshiping many gods. But Rahab wisely saw that the Israelites' one god was the true God. Rahab defied the culture she was raised in and chose something better. Her belief in the God of the Israelites led to a faith willing to take risks, which eventually saved her life and the lives of her family. Okay, Rahab continued, Heather.
1: Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. I love this
0: little section because you can clearly see that Rahab was relational. And when we get in a couple of weeks to who she becomes and how important that is to Jesus Christ, you'll know that this woman cared about her family. She negotiated for those she cared about even before she didn't even really mention herself. The inn was not her parents. They did not live with her, which may mean that they disapproved of her profession because it was unusual for a young woman to live without her family. And she must have been fairly young as there is no mention of children until after she becomes grafted into Israel. Whatever the situation was with her family, she loved them and she negotiated for their lives as well as her own because she knew for sure that Canaan was going down. And she was going to protect those who she loved. Now, hesed is the word for kindness that Heather said twice in this verse. She says, "'Swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you.'" This has said is a super important word and kindness does not begin to express it. It is an unusual but important Hebrew word that we will often read. So every time you read kindness or they acted kindly, think that this is, it is really this word. Because the Hebrew word hesed appears about 250 times in the Old Testament. Now, the concept of hesed is difficult to grasp. In fact, whole books have been written about it. It is a word that no one single English word can convey accurately. Hesed is a type of love that includes covenantal loyalty, so it's super deep, and relational, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, and compassion. It is usually based on a relationship that had a prior history, and it usually requires an action. It is usually performed by a more powerful person for a weaker person, and it is a voluntary act of extraordinary mercy or generosity. In summary, hased refers to an act performed for the benefit of a person in desperate need, in the framework of enduring commitment between the parties concerned. So I hope you can understand it's not given lightly. It's It means we are kind of linked forever. Um, most of the Bible references of Hased describe a loving act of God to man. Um, in Genesis 19, the word Hased is used when God sends angels to rescue Lot. He was being gracious to Abraham and Lot. And Lot was in desperate need. In Genesis 32, Jacob, fearing Esau for his life, asked God for Hased because he knew he, he thought es- uh, Esau was going to kill him. And when we get to another great love story in the history books, the book of Ruth, Hased will make another beautiful appearance. From Boaz. Now, in this case, Rahab shows Hased to the spies who are in a life threatening situation and asks for Hased in return. When she will be in a life-threatening position when they come to conquer Canaan, they are entering into a covenantal-like relationship by extending to each other acts of extraordinary mercy. And the fact that she knew this word and used it with them was huge because it is a Hebrew word. It is not a Canaanite word. They were going to protect each other's lives. It was deeply meaningful. And for one of these spies, the spy who loved her, it may have carried more meaning
1: than she realized at the time. Okay, keep going on. I wonder if that's a little bit of why they were so kind to her, because they could tell that she understood the Hebrews and understood their way of life.
0: I'm sure there was a lot more conversation between them. Yes. They knew that she was special and they're about to do something special. I don't want to get too far ahead, but you know, there's, well, I can't give it away. They're entering into a treaty here that they're not supposed to make with a Canaanite person. So they already, again, these are, these two spies were hand chosen. They're special and they have a lot of wisdom and they were using it. And and in cases of war, you have to you have to go with your gut and but you have to know your principles.
1: And I and I they knew they were justified in what they were about to do. But she's special, special and hand chosen as well. Yes. Yeah. All right, continuing on in verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, "'Go to the hills, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way.' Now the men had said to her, "'This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down.' And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house onto the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. "'Agreed,' she replied. "'Let it be as you say.'" Rahab was not just a risk taker, she was a rule breaker.
0: She broke the rules of the Canaanites and defied the Canaanite king of Jericho by lying about the spies.'" And she broke God's rule as a Canaanite survivor. So let me explain this. God had commanded the Israelites to make no Canaanite treaties and leave no Canaanite survivors in the promised land in Deuteronomy 7 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Rahab did both. She made a treaty with the spies and she survived the conquest. She defied the odds. And we know that God sanctioned it, but also he praised her for it. He praised Rahab for defying the odds that he had set out and the the rules that he had made for them not to do this. Now, Paul tells us why in
1: Hebrews 11, 31. He said this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient or unbelieving. It was her faith that saved her. So God looked down and he saw this girl and he said, she really believes.
0: She's going to come out. Imagine that. They're not going to kill her. I told them to, but they're not going to. They're going to see it. I see it. She gets to live. With Rahab's confession of faith, she ceased to be
1: a Canaanite, choosing instead to unite herself with the Israelites and with God. Continuing on in verse 21. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The scarlet cord should strike a
0: cord because just as Rahab and her family were saved by the red cord in the window... The Hebrew slaves in Egypt were saved by the red blood of the lamb on the door, and we are saved by the red blood of Jesus as he hung on the cross." Now, I do want to say this about the cord and Jericho because I spiraled out on this and we could have really turned this episode into two or three episodes if I kept going. But Jericho, if you Google pictures and you could actually watch a video because there have been archaeological digs of Jericho, um, like I said, was built up on this hill and these two walls and that was the hard part. You couldn't get in. They closed the gates, they opened the gates, there was so much control. But what happened is... Like, I pictured they marched around, you know, and we're going to read about this next week, and it just, like, the whole thing crumbled. And what they said happened is the base of the hill was kind of a... a, a stone rampart built up. And then the city was built up on top of that. And on top of the stone rampart were these brick walls, the first wall for the outer one, and then another brick wall and the inner one. And what they said happened was when they marched around, the bricks fell and actually created a crumbled ramp for people to run up and conquer. And it probably didn't crumble in every place. You know, so it created these ramps for them to run up into the city and that's how they conquered it. So it's not like only her little part of the wall was standing, you know what I mean? That's how I always pictured it. Okay, like everything around the whole city crumbles except for her little part of the wall. No, it probably wasn't the whole wall that crumbled. But it is fun to look, um, watch the video about the archeological dig, how they find these bricks at the bottom and that's how they figured out Oh, this
1: is how they got in. The bricks then became a ramp. So a little aside there. Continuing on in verse 22, when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. All right, Rahab and her
0: family are still on the wall. The spies are back in the camp. Joshua seems totally cool with the whole thing. And we are back to our main man, Joshua. And out of time in this episode. To find out how Rahab's story ends and more about the mysterious Salman, the spy we think who loved her, you will have to wait until chapter six, the episode after the next one.
1: Well, this is a cliffhanger. I feel like I'm watching like one of those shows that drops only weekly. This
0: whole episode, I was playing in my head the spy who loved me from the movie, you know, and and it did remind me of her because there is one stanza that kind of fits rehab yeah
1: i can't wait i wish i was binging bible maybe club james right now. bond
0: needs to be maybe james bond needs to be our um our uh solomon which james bond would he be you have to be the old one pierce broadman no because right? the spy who loved me was the one before it what was his name oh roger moore
1: yes it was roger moore but it would have to be back when they were young <laughs> yeah because to be a young yeah. roger moore yeah